can turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 4. Nathan, I thank you for prayers for me and my family. Uh, it's always encouraging uh, when people express their appreciation and love towards me and our family. And sometimes it's just a word of encouragement or a card or a gift card or uh, things. But um, I was blessed this morning by little Heidi bringing to me a rock that she had painted and that's going to go in my office and I appreciate that very much so thank you for doing that um, very precious give me relief from my stress unlike Psalm 3 we're not given any particular life situation out of which David wrote this psalm. From the psalm itself, we just know that David was experiencing anxiety. The situation in which he found himself was stressful. And he cried out to God for relief. David experiences anxiety. And he works through that anxiety in a, in a way that exalts God. And everyone here experiences anxiety. We all have to deal with stress. The causes of stress, the degrees of stress may be very different from person to person. But there is no such thing as a stress-free life. Psalm 4 is for everyone. It lays down the foundation of finding peace and joy. But Psalm 4 is not a seven-step guide to inner peace. You will not find encouragement to take long walks, get regular exercise, eat more healthily, talk to counselors. None of that. Any number of other solutions to lowering your blood pressure. Psalm 4 doesn't condemn any of those things. It just is not giving you steps to peace here. It is likely that this psalm was placed immediately after Psalm 3 for a purpose. Both of these psalms deal with confident rest in God. If you look at Psalm 3, verse 5, it says, I lay down and slept and woke again. And then if you look at Psalm 4, verse 8, it says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. So um, most commentators think that that in the Psalter, these were situated as a morning psalm and an evening psalm. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, in Psalm 3, David's enemies are increasing in number and strength, and David's victory is to maintain his faith in the face of these challenges against him. And he really wants his foes to be crushed in Psalm 3. But in Psalm 4, David has foes, but they're causing distress partly. They're not helping the situation. But rather than call upon God to defeat them, 
David is going to speak to them. Very interesting. In fact, the core of Psalm 4 is David's calling his foes to repentance and faith. He calls them out of an attitude of unbelief. And this this addressing of other people is sandwiched between a a beginning prayer in verse 1 and really a closing display of confidence in verses 7 and 8. I want to just take just a couple seconds and talk about the introductory uh, comments to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Interestingly enough, David writes the psalm, but it was really given to someone else to be sung, to be coordinated, and even to use stringed instruments. Now, there are 55 psalms with this heading to the choir master. Uh, and Psalm 5, just to give you a flavor, Psalm 5 has it, but then it, it'll change it a little bit and it'll say for the flutes rather than for stringed instruments. I'm going to be very, uh, just very, uh, I'm not going to go very deep into this, but I'm going to just draw a couple quick things that I would draw from this. Number one, we learn from this that music played an important role in formal worship. So much so that when worship actually occurred at the temple, there was someone appointing to direct it. They wanted everybody to be worshiping in unison. Um, We can also learn that that different psalms fit better with different instruments. That's kind of an interesting thought. There was an attempt to have the music to enhance the mood of the psalm. What we don't have is any specifics as to what that music sounded like. We don't have any examples, much as we might like that. We don't have any idea what they were, uh, what the tunes were that they were uh, using. But I do find it absolutely wonderful that a Psalm 4 was written and put to music more than 3,000 years ago for God's people to sing. And that God's people have been drawing strength from this psalm ever since. I was blessed this morning by the, I don't know if it's the first psalm or the second psalm psalm that we think was the first psalm that we sang that actually came from psalm 130 and it was put to a different tune probably than what david sang it to right and so you can just see how these psalms can can be blessing to god's people and that's exactly what they're intended for it also ought to encourage you that um three thousand years ago people were dealing with stress and it's just not something that has gone away uh in our lives. Okay, that being said, let's go to Psalm 4. Let's look at verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now this verse is purposely compact. Answer me when I call. So, as you are here today, I'm sure experiencing one sort of stress or another, the most important thing that you can do is call upon God. Not a long prayer. Don't have to sit before God for an hour. 
Well, I, I do recommend long prayers in situations, but that's not the point here. It is in prayer that we cast our anxieties upon God, looking to Him for relief. And I stress again, it's not so much the practice of prayer, like if I could just develop my prayer life, then I would have more peace. It is the action of believing that there is a God who hears your prayer and you're calling upon him. David has problems. And he asks God to give him relief. I could not, I mean, I could just stop the, the, the whole sermon. That's, that's it, all right? You got problems? Talk to God. Tell him. It's that simple. It is also important to see that in verse 1, David does not yet have the answer that he is seeking. He's simply asking. And I know that many of you have asked God for relief, and it only seems that he's heaped on more stress. Other psalms deal with that issue. Psalm 13, for instance. David cries aloud, how long will you forget me forever? So there's other psalms that deal with this feeling that we have that God is not answering our prayer. But it's not this one. What he wants you to know now is that you should call upon him. The focus is on, not on how long you might have to wait. Psalm 130 actually says, as the watchman waits for the morning. That's like a long time. The focus is not on that here. Instead, the focus is on why David is confident that the prayer would be heard and answered favorably. And David's confidence flows out of two foundational truths. And they are squashed together in one little phrase, O God of my righteousness. Now commentators take this little phrase in two different ways. The first is that David believes his God to be a God whose character is righteous. In other words, it might be like, O my righteous God. And you have to understand that part of the meaning of righteous in Hebrew is faithfulness. In other words, God keeps his word. And so David is confident that God will answer his prayer because God has said to him, I want you to come to me and I'm giving you promises. And so he just said, well, God's, God doesn't go back on his promises so I can tell him uh, things and he will answer me. And specifically, I'm trying to tie these back to chapter, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, God actually tells David to ask of me and I'll give you the nations. That's a pretty big request. So he knows that he's going to get some answer. And then in Psalm 1, there's an implied promise that if you delight in my law, you will be a flourishing tree. Right? So, so why should you have confidence that God will hear your prayers? Well, because God is faithful. Period. 
And I would make the connection that this is not just applying to David. It was supposed to be applied to all God's people who are experiencing stress. And especially for you and I today, because you have God as a father because you have Christ as your savior. Okay, God's character has not changed. He tells you to come to him as a father. He is your father in Christ. He will be faithful to you. In other words, God will never drop the ball on your prayer. That's why he's confident. The second way that commentators take God of my righteousness is that God is the one who makes David righteous. It's the God of my righteousness. So the Hebrew word can mean faithful, but it can also mean more than faithful. It can mean rightness, the quality of being right, of doing right. And God himself is righteous. He always does what's right. But here it is more that God has made David righteous. Some translations and some commentators said it could even be read. The God who declares me innocent. The God who justifies me. The God of my justification. All those sorts of things. Now, I am convinced, I know enough about poetry to know that poetry often leaves these things kind of ambiguous. I'm convinced that both of those are probably intended in the psalmist. They, all, they both fit nicely into the theme of the psalm, and they're both theologically true. God answers your prayers because you have been declared righteous, not because of how good you are, because of how many victories you've won or how many good deeds you've done. Answer me, God. Because you have made me righteous in Christ. The second phrase is also very interesting. You have given me relief when I was in distress. And the ESV, along with most translations, take this as sort of an interlude to the prayer. Like, oh yeah, I'm remembering back to the fact that you've relieved stresses in the past, and therefore you're going to do it now. You're gaining confidence from that. And I, I... I think that's true. I think it's good. It's theologically correct. I don't have any problems with that. But I actually favor slightly the translation of the New International Version, the NIV, on this. Listen to this. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. I just like it because it's it's so, Psalm 1 is already, I mean, verse 1 is already so compact anyway that it's just basically saying, I need relief. And the whole psalm is about saying, I need relief from my distress. And so to kind of have it as a, this interlude, although it kind of makes sense, I think it's better to just see it as him saying, I need help. The final phrase is clear enough. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And I think what we're seeing here, the psalmist is recognizing God doesn't deal with stress. He's not stressed out. And so when you come to him with your stress, you're, you're, like a, you're saying, Lord, please stoop down and have mercy to me in my situation. I'm struggling here. And so the whole idea of graciousness, be gracious to me, is not 
I mean, of course it's gracious to me because, because I'm a sinner, but I think it's even just, I just need you to know that you care about my weakness and my frailty and the struggles that I'm dealing with. And I think that's where we are. And, and of course, God definitely does care. Um, he does stoop down to us. He is a gracious God who, even though he's above all things, doesn't, he's not aloof to your pain and your suffering and the things that stress you out in life. Now, one implication of this very short prayer is that stress is not something you can remove on your own. Contrary to what the world says, take this pill, do this act, do this thing. You can take care of it. You can be stress-free. The psalmist right at the beginning says, God, I need you to relieve my stress. I don't know about you, but that's very refreshing to me. I get sick and tired of hearing messages of, here's a problem you didn't even know about, and here's a solution, fix this one, do this, do that, and by the end you're just going, oh. It also tells me that if you have not yet mastered all of your stress, there's not something wrong with you. There's not a command here, what's your problem? Get rid of your stress. Instead, the command is, go to God with your stress. Now, it would be very easy to skip down to verses 7 and 8. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It would be nice to just, okay, you got your prayer, and then you got your response. But instead, the psalmist goes through verses 2 through 6. Let me read those to you. O men, not even talking to God at all now. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And then there's a pause, Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Another pause. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. We'll stop there at verse 5. First question is, who are these men? They are in some way contributing to David's distress. That's why he brings them in. So whatever difficulty David is experiencing, these men are telling David that he should feel shame over it. And they are also saying that they don't really believe David is ever going to be pulled up out of it. You see, both to David and to you who are in Christ, God has promised to you honor with him. But when you're dealing with the anxieties of life, you are called, you're, you're like, Start asking the question, why am I being crushed? Why am I being taken so low? Must be something I'm, that's wrong with me. And I, this, this must, be my, must be my destiny. I'm never going to get out of this. And there's always somebody there to help you with that thinking. Right? These men love vain words. 
In other words, David is telling them that the thinking that they have, the words that David will always be kept low, are vain. They're empty. And these men are seeking after lies. I think this kind of means that they are actually happy that David's brought low. They don't want to see him lifted up. You ever think misery loves company, right? Loves to see other people down. They want it to be true. And David is telling them, don't, you're seeking lies. You're believing vain words. Because even though I'm down and out right now, I am going to be lifted up. And you need to change your thinking on this. Because God will not forsake his people. He has promised to honor all who are in Christ. And he will be faithful to keep that promise. And so David is actually addressing the unbelievers in his midst. And he's calling them to reflect upon their unbelief and to change their ideas. Verse 3, David expresses his confidence that the Lord will indeed hear his prayer and give him relief. He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and the Lord hears when I call him. The word for godly here is a version of hesed, which usually we put on God, that he is the covenant-keeping God. But, but godly is not so much that they've mastered godliness and they're just above everybody else. It's that they are clinging to the covenant God and they're seeking to be faithful and loyal to that God. That's what it means to be godly here. The ungodly person is saying, forget God, I'm just going to live on my own. And so he says, look, God never forgets his godly people. He sets them apart for himself. In the New Testament, we're going to actually take a sacrament here in a little while, that we're going to be part of the new covenant in his blood. Those who are trusting in the blood of Christ are part of a covenant where God has set you apart and called you saints and called you godly in and of himself. The point is that David is challenging these men to become godly. He wants them to repent of their unbelieving hearts. They too could enjoy the assurance that God would hear their prayer. Verse 4, there's David continuing to exhort these men. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Now I think these words are very much confused because you are New Testament people and you... Immediately when you hear, be angry and do not sin, what comes into your mind is Ephesians 4.26, where Paul is calling believers to, to, in a sense, master their anger. Don't get so angry that it, that it causes them to sin. And he even says in 4.26, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So in Ephesians, God is, or Paul is speaking to believers, but that's not the context of Psalm 4. David is calling unbelievers to repentance and faith. And being overcome by feelings of anger is not really the issue at all. What is the issue? Well, the issue, and Nathan brought this up in 
know if it's your prayer or your altar worship, they don't have any fear of God. That's the issue. So this word be angry can also just mean tremble, shake. So the King James translates it stand in awe. The New American Standard translates it tremble. See, David wants these men to have a healthy fear of the Lord. Rather than using their troubles or David's troubles as an excuse for unbelief, he wants them to tremble before God. You see, he wants them from this position of humble trembling before God to turn from their sinful attitude and embrace God as their covenant Lord. Jared Wilson writes, the majority of times this word appears in the Old Testament, it means to shake or to tremble, usually in response to some fearful stimulus. The earth shakes when an earthquake, uh, with an earthquake or at the awesome presence of Yahweh. Humans also acknowledge their vulnerability in the presence of the Almighty by trembling. That's what we're talking about. Charles Spurgeon makes it very succinct. He says... Um, How many reverse this counsel and sin, but tremble not? Thought, man, way to go, Spurgeon. Uh, The second half of the verse then makes perfect sense. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. In other words, instead of giving me your vain words, instead of talking to me about how I'm going to be kept low, you need to go home and rethink your life. The path that you are on is not a good one. You are arrogantly living your life as if the covenant Lord of the universe does not exist. And you need to tremble before him and change your sinful attitude. I think this is really interesting that David is here calling people in a psalm of worship to repentance and faith. Hmm. Does that mean that people who are unbelieving may be singing the psalms and need to be called to repentance? Just because you're here today doesn't mean you're having an attitude of belief. Just because you sing the psalm doesn't mean you're actually are believing it in your heart. You may not actually be trusting in the God of your righteousness. What's interesting here is David doesn't call them to some outward expression of obedience. They're already doing it. They're already there in the worship service. Instead, he calls them to inwardly tremble. And to maybe go home and think about their lives. And come back with true faith. Then, when you understand this, you also know that even as someone who is a true believer in Christ, that you still struggle with unbelief. And so even as someone who, myself, who I think is a true worshiper of God, I need to hear these words. So I don't just go through the motions of worship. 
I need to reflect upon my heart and come before him in true worship. Verse 5 then says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Makes perfect sense. I'm often asked, how did the Old Testament saints, how were they saved? And it's often thought that they were saved by actually keeping the sacrificial laws. But I would say in the New Testament, and they would then contrast that within the New Testament, we're saved by faith. But this makes it perfectly clear that the offering of sacrifices is only the outward means that they were using to look forward to a future perfect sacrifice, and that the heart of worship was putting your trust in the Lord. So the Old Testament saint is just as much saved by faith. In verse 6, Paul is not so much calling men to repentance, that's why stopped before as he's addressing the attitude of unbelief notice in verse six there are many who say this is kind of a vague way of saying like like the attitude is out there who will show us some good lift up the light of your face upon us O lord see there's a there's a common way to deal with trials and it's sort of to um to put god on the block you know, this is really what our culture says today. I tried. I trusted in God. He didn't do for me what I wanted. Eh, if God's not going to give me what I want, he's not going to take care of the stresses. I tried to ask him that I'm going to move on to somebody else. Who will show us some good? Just We turn our relationship with, into, our relationship with God into what will you do for me today? And this is an attitude of unbelief. Now there's some question whether the second part of the verse is a continuation of the unbelieving attitude or David's response to the attitude. The ESV takes it as uh, part of the unbelieving attitude. If you look there, look at where the quotation ends. Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And then the quotation ends. So the whole verse is a part of this unbelieving attitude that Paul is challenging, according to the SV. In other words, people are saying, yeah, I want God to give me his, his face. I want him to show uh, uh, kindness and, and goodness to me. I want him to handle my problems, those kind of attitudes. But they're not truly bowing before him. They're not actually giving God true worship. The Christian Standard Bible actually stops the quotation after who can show us anything good. And then it says, look upon us with favor. It's kind of more of the prayer of God. I'm not trying to fix all that for you, but either way, however you take this, the psalmist is admitting that choosing to believe occurs in the presence of unbelieving thoughts and feelings. And I'm so thankful that the, you know, Jesus doesn't respond critically to the, to the guy who says, um, I believe, help my unbelief. So there's a sense of, in the psalm, we're all struggling to truly believe, and, and there's, uh, 
a struggle we just all have. Now, I was talking to someone after worship last week, and they were saying, that, yeah, like, I know these truths, but getting them into my heart is a huge struggle. Um, and I think going from, from the first part of the psalm to verse 7 is a struggle. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Joy and peace. This is going to be the last two. Joy and peace. Last two verses. In verse 7, we see that the source of joy comes from the Lord. Now, what this means, a lot of times people think that the relief of my stress will come from the Lord. And that will produce joy. And that is true many times. But that's not what he's saying here in verse 7. Joy is not having relief from your distressing circumstance. See, there's more joy than the joy that you would have if all of your stress was taken away. If you can imagine all the things that stress you being removed... David says, I think you can give me more joy than if I had every blessing in the world. That's what he's saying. You following that? That's pretty awesome. Now, there are a couple ways you can even take this statement here. It's possible to just think that David is right at this moment, like being lifted up by these truths, and he is just on a spiritually slash emotional high at this moment. And I can testify in my life that that's happened sometimes. Right in the midst of having terrible things going on, you're praying, you're asking God for relief, and, and he just floods you with a sense of joy. That can happen. It's a good thing. But it is also possible that this is a statement of faith. Accepting that God is the giver of joy, and even if he doesn't uh, reduce my stress, I'm still going to look to him for joy. It'd just be a statement of faith. And it's also possible, the Hebrew allows for this, at least scholars tell me, I'm not that great of a Hebrew scholar, but they tell me, it's broad enough that this can also mean, give me greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I think all three of these are helpful. All three are necessary. Yes, there are times when God just floods you with joy. Even like martyrs sometimes experiencing great peace and joy, like Stephen seeing the face of God even in the midst of being martyred. Things like this occur. That's great. There's, there should also be this confidence that God will give joy even if, if nothing changes in my circumstances. And there's also this sense of praying, Lord, you are the God of joy. I'm not experiencing that right now, but I'm continuing to cry out to you. And look to you. All those are important. And they connect with Jesus' words. This is where you see, like, in the New Testament, you don't have to have this statement, Jesus is God, to hear this. Because in Psalm 4, all of this is attributed to God. And then in John 15, Jesus says, I have these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Oh, is that a different joy than the joy that God gave in Psalm 4? No, it is the same joy because Jesus is God. See how that's a, a statement of his deity? And that your joy may be full. 
And now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Keep talking to me. Keep coming to me. You're not experiencing joy. You need greater joy. Great. Keep asking me. Because I'm the giver of joy. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Who controls the Spirit? Your Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I think is interesting is that in verse 1, it's just, just coming to God, I'm stressed out, I need help. And then by uh, verse 7, he's saying, oh, but even if that didn't get worked out, you're my joy. Just awesome. Furtado says that this is, uh, this, we shouldn't like water down this prayer. He says, David prays not only for God's smile, but also for the joy that comes from experiencing the smile not only for joy, but for the superabundant joy that exceeds even the joy of an abundant harvest. Like, he wants everything. So here's, here's my thought. You, you may not get joy tomorrow. You may pray this prayer and you still don't have joy. But you keep asking. Don't, don't like, lower the standard. Keep asking for the true joy because that's what he has promised. Verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David knows that whatever plagues his soul, he can lie down and go to sleep. This security is not based upon the fact that the distress will be gone in the morning. If it were, there would be a new stress to take its place. As I was kind of finishing up this morning with this, you know, the, the thought that came to me, you know how we say God's mercies are new every morning? We could say the stresses of life are new every morning. <laughs> and the reality is that whatever is stressing you out today is the tip of the iceberg of the things that could stress you out. You realize that? You're focused on whatever it is. And if God just kind of like opened up the curtain and said, hey, let me just show you all the things that could go wrong today. You would think you're, oh, you, we'd all collapse. We'd all be overwhelmed. And I like this because you go to sleep not because you think that the stress is going to be removed or there won't be others there. You go to sleep because you know that the Lord is with you. Your security is bound up with the knowledge that you have been in a covenant relationship with the God of the universe. He's ruling over your life. May not feel like it, but he is. The core of our faith in Jesus Christ is that he is Lord. He is not a dead savior. He is reigning. He has the right to give you peace. John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in John 16, 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You're going to have stress. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, keep calling upon Jesus. You can do the other 7, 14, 37 steps to peace if you want. But the Bible's concerned that you keep calling upon Jesus. Don't expect your stressors to be all taken away. Yeah, there'll be times when he removes them and new ones will take their place. And even as you wrestle to not have joy, continue to look to the source of joy and wait upon him. And even as you're waiting upon him to give you greater joy, understand that you can go to sleep tonight and you can go to bed and your Lord will still be on the job. You see, Jesus truly has removed the curse that is over you. It's what the world doesn't get. You see, the stressors and the, the, the uh, pains and the struggles of life are really for the world. They're a, they're a reminder that hell is coming. But for those of you who are in Christ, they don't have that meaning anymore. You have a Lord who is using those stressors to draw you to himself. And that's what we're here to do. Cry out to him. Amen.